I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Oh, and this week is a very serious and sad topic, and it's something that I am kind of piggybacking off of a lot of other similar conversations that Keegan and I had had in the past based around this sort of subject in particular, but I wanted to talk about school shooters and why they are rarely anything other than young white men. Now, I do know that statistics are obviously more broad than that, but we have discussed time and time again on the show that this is the primary demographic for a school shooter. And Keegan and I did an episode a couple of years ago, I believe, about women who are violent and the differences between, you know, men and women and how they display violence historically and socially and things like that. And I thought that it would be kind of an interesting jumping off place to discuss mass shooters, but school shooters in particular. Um, I was going to open it up more to mass shootings, but there are way more statistics, way more to talk about. And with the prevalence of school shootings in our country, I found that focusing primarily on school shooters is going to be the focus of this episode. So women and girls make up only 2% of school shooters, according to statistics, but even that seems a little bit high to me, just based on the different stories that I had read. So why is it that there are more male shooters than female shooters? And why are the majority of these male shooters white? And who are these 2% of women and girls? And what can their stories tell us about the cycle of white male perpetrators? So I do have a few stories of 
women and girls who have been perpetrators in school shootings. And I wanted to talk about them today because two of them are not well known at all. One of them is a little bit more well known. But I think these stories can help shed some light on why males are more often perpetrators and what the differences are in these stories, what the similarities are, are men and women so different, so on and so forth. So the first one I wanted to talk about was Heather Smith. And this I actually just found through a like Quora question page. I just Googled like, who were the past, you know, female school shooters? And One of them showed up over and over and over again, and this one showed up toward the bottom, and they were like, no one's ever heard of this, and I'm like, I've never heard of this. And this perpetrator is named Heather, and on November 26, 1985, 14-year-old Heather fatally shot two boys, one of them being her ex-boyfriend, then killed herself with a 22 caliber rifle on school property. In the weeks prior to the shooting, classmates had heard rumors that Heather wanted to, quote, get her ex-boyfriend Gordon Pickett and his best friend Chris, but unfortunately her classmates didn't take these rumors seriously as apparently she had a liking for practical jokes. Heather was also very smart and well-liked, so putting myself in the shoes of her classmates, I I can see why you'd be like, well, she's just saying shit. She's a kid. Like, she's probably not going to actually come to school with a gun. Heather and Gordon had broken up six weeks prior to the shooting, and it was described in an article from APNews.com as puppy love. Very innocent. There was no real, like, crazy romance going on or anything like that. And it sounds like the relationship didn't really last a very long time, but that wasn't in the article. On that November day in 1985, she retrieved a rifle from her home and returned to school and waited for 15-year-old Gordon to leave the gym after wrestling practice. With Gordon was his best friend, Chris Rico, who was 14 years old at the time. Chris was the first to notice Heather and the gun, and he stepped in front of his friend. Heather then fired away, first at Chris, then at Gordon, killing them both. She then fled the school, but returned hours later, still carrying the gun. The cops were waiting for her when she arrived, and they tried their best to coax her to drop the weapon, reassuring her that it'll be all right, but Heather knew it wouldn't be all right, and she ended her life. Pierce County Sheriff says that Heather had thrown out a lot of signals before the shooting, like I mentioned. He had interviewed students after the event and found that half a dozen to a dozen had heard Heather say that she planned to shoot Gordon or get even with Gordon, adding that people would remember her. The next one I wanted to talk about was not actually a shooting, but the planning of a shooting. And the reason that I wanted to discuss it is because, well, it's just really disturbing. Let's get into it. There were four teenagers from Pennsylvania who were charged for conspiring to attack their high school on the 25th anniversary of the Columbine Massacre. So this would not happen until 2024, so they would still be in the planning process now had they not been stopped, thankfully. Two of the 15-year-olds were being charged as adults due to their level of culpability in the plot, while the other two were charged as juveniles. Now we know that one of them at least was a teenage girl, the other one was her boyfriend. The teenage girl and her boyfriend had been planning a school shooting of their own, like I said, for April 2024. They called their plan Natural Born Killers, which is fascinating for a few reasons. Um, I actually know a lot about the Columbine Massacre. 
I read the book Columbine by Dave Cullen, which is so good, so well written, a very thorough investigative book. But I also listened to a podcast and oh gosh, what was it called? I'm gonna have to look it up. It was called Confronting Columbine, and I believe it was by the same people that did Confronting OJ, where Kim Goldman, Ron Goldman's sister, went and investigated more and more about her brother's death and really highlighted Ron Goldman's backstory inside of the story because Nicole Brown Simpson is always the primary person focused on during that murder. But Confronting Columbine was a great podcast because it was hosted by a victim of the massacre. She wasn't shot herself, but she was in the school and had a lot of friends that were clearly distraught and hurt by this. And it really is about how the whole school, the whole town went through this terrible, terrible morning. But through a lot of my reading, I know a lot about the killers from the Columbine massacre. And they really were like, so cheesy, in my opinion, because they were like, oh, we're these natural born killers. They really liked the movie. They would write natural born killers a lot in their journals and things like that. So the fact that these teenagers decided to call their plan natural born killers just really shows ties to their obsession with the Columbine massacre. The girl's mother even said she was obsessed with Columbine, which, by the way, I don't like referring to the shooting as Columbine, period. Because in the podcast, Confronting Columbine, she talks about that a lot. Columbine is an entire city. It's not just a school. It's not an event. And they've really done their best to kind of like rebrand. And that's a bad way of saying it. But they've tried to kind of bring back. They tried to bring back some of the innocence of that town, I think, by not referring to the event as simply Columbine. And Columbine is actually a flower as well. It's really beautiful. So I don't want to take part in referring to a massacre as the name of a city, so it is the Columbine Massacre. The mother found texts between the teens talking about their plan to attack Dunmore High School, their hatred for the school, and how they wanted, quote, everything to go down like that, referencing the Columbine shootings. The principal of the school, Timothy Hopkins, was interviewed for AP News, where I read a little bit about this event as well, and he seemed very perplexed as to why he in particular was targeted in the shooting, but he assumes it was probably because he was the principal. And he also described these kids as quiet and not troublemakers, which is something that is disturbing to me because typically we would be looking out for warning signs to be able to let us know that something like this could be happening. And maybe they were showing warning signs that teachers and faculty were not aware of. But I do think it's important for teachers and faculty to start learning more about what those signs are so that they can help prevent things like this happening, although we don't even pay them enough. (laughs) It's not really their job, but we have to keep everybody safe. Before I move on to our final girl, no pun intended, I wanted to talk about one instance that I could only find a few articles on, and that is a shooting in an Idaho middle school where a sixth grade girl had come to school with a handgun, shot two of her students before a, and shot two of her students before her teacher was able to disarm her. The two students that were shot were shot in the extremities and did not have any life-threatening injuries, thankfully, and they are both totally okay physically, emotionally. I'm sure that they will be dealing with this for the rest of their lives. 
This school shooting was rare for more than it being a girl shooter. She was much younger than the typical school shooter would be. 18% of school shootings occur in middle schools, though most of these were perpetrated by older teens, possibly someone who used to go to the school who was coming back. And in general, school shootings are more likely to occur in high schools than in middle schools. The last female shooter I'm going to be talking about is none other than Brenda Spencer. Now, I feel like some of you may know who she is if you listen to any sort of true crime podcast or are interested in crime in any sort of way, because there is a reason that Brenda Spencer is a bit more well-known than even some other school shooters in general, and we'll get into that. I had first learned about Brenda from another podcast, and I found her story incredibly interesting. She had a very sad backstory. Brenda's parents separated when she was young, and she lived primarily with her abusive father in a small home where they both shared one small mattress. Brenda had gotten a psychiatric evaluation about a month before the shooting, and it was recommended to her father that she enter some sort of treatment for her depression, but he did not give his permission for her to do so. That year for Christmas, Brenda's dad had given her a 22 caliber rifle and 500 rounds when she had allegedly asked for a new radio. Brenda took this and his dismissal of her mental health concerns as a sign that her dad wanted her to end her life, according to Brenda. Also according to Brenda, she was often drunk and stoned and had been completely loaded on the day of the event. Although investigators only found some beer cans and whiskey bottles when searching the house, Brenda claimed to be high on LSD and marijuana all the time and drank a lot, which I think that if her dad was displaying a lot of these behaviors, it would make sense for her to do the same, although it does sound like she was embellishing a little bit for her intoxication on the day of the shooting. Something else that's very important as to why I think a school shooting was her method is because she lived directly across the street from Grover Cleveland Elementary School, and she had actually gotten in trouble at that school once before for shooting out the windows of the school with a BB gun. On the morning of January 29, 1979, school principal Burton Bragg was waiting by the school gate to let in a group of students waiting to start their school day. It was in this moment that Brenda opened fire, first shooting nine-year-old Cam Miller, who thankfully survived. She then shot Principal Rag, then the head custodian, Mike Sukar, who was trying to help Rag. A quick side note, apparently Rag and Sukar were not fond of each other in life, but Sukar still did his best to save Rag. Once the cops arrived, she shot and killed a police officer as well. After firing over 30 rounds, Brenda barricaded herself in her home for about seven hours while police tried to convince her to come out. While she was stuck in her home, she began calling random people and taking calls from reporters. When one reporter asked her why she did it, she said, I don't like Mondays. This livens up the day. Though she had threatened to come out shooting, she eventually surrendered and came out of the house reportedly after being promised Burger King by negotiators. She was charged as an adult and pled guilty to two counts of murder with a deadly weapon. She was sentenced to 25 years to life and remains in a Chico, California women's prison to this day. Bob Geldof from the Irish new wave band Boomtown Rats wrote the song I Don't Like Mondays after he heard a news report about the event. Bob thought not liking Mondays as a reason for doing somebody in is a bit strange. When criticized for glorifying the tragedy, he said, 
It was the perfect senseless act, and this was the perfect senseless reason for doing it. So perhaps I wrote the perfect senseless song to illustrate it. He has said in years later that he regrets writing this song because he, quote, made Brenda Spencer famous. And this song is a big reason why Brenda is more well-known. I wanted to add a few of the lyrics to this song because I do think that is a rather interesting part of our history. Apparently, the band was also working with Steve Jobs at the time, and so their first line opens with, the silicone chip inside her head gets switched to overload, and nobody's going to go to school today. She's going to make them stay at home, and Daddy doesn't understand it. He always said she was good as gold, and he can see no reasons, because there are no reasons. What reasons do you need to be shown? The Telemax machine is kept so clean, and it types to a waiting world. Her mother feels so shocked, father's world is rocked, and their thoughts turn to their own little girl. Sweet 16, ain't that peachy keen? Now it ain't so neat to admit defeat. They can see no reasons, cause there are no reasons. What reasons do you need? All the playing stopped in the playground now. She wants to play with the toys a while. And school's out early, and soon we'll be learning, and the lesson today is how to die. And then the bullhorn crackles and the captain tackles with the problems and hows and whys. And he can see no reasons, because there are no reasons. What reason do you need to die? This also reminds me a little bit of a more recent song, Pumped Up Kicks, that came out by Foster the People. Oh gosh, I was like 18 or 19 when that came out, so probably like... 2011, 2012. And I remember there being a lot of controversy over it at the time as well, because they believed that it glorified school shooters. And I think that it's interesting, you know, how these songs are being criticized, because in my opinion, neither of these songs are saying it's a good thing, or that we should be, you know, exemplifying ourselves ourselves after these people. But I think it's a commentary on the world that we live in. And I think that that's what music is about. I think that it's understandable that people would point that out, that it's glorifying a horrible tragedy. I think that it's important for artists to keep themselves accountable and to talk about why they wrote certain things. But to me, I think for a lot of people, they wouldn't have known about this tragedy had it not been for the song. And I think it's kind of a catch-22 because so many school shooters try to model themselves after past shooters, but I also think that it's a way for the public consciousness, especially at the time when school shootings were not as prevalent, to be aware of what was going on in the world. And Brenda herself has spoken out about her regret toward her crimes and how she wishes others wouldn't model their behavior after her. There is this great book that I have called Letters from Prison by Jennifer Furio, which is a, a compilation of a bunch of different letters that she had sent to female prisoners and that they had sent back to her discussing their crimes. And I am a firm believer in it being important for these people to tell their stories, not because I think that they're always truthful, but I think that the more that we can know about people who do bad things, maybe the more we can do to prevent it. So I found this to be a very interesting book. I think Brenda a lot of times didn't really want to talk about her crimes and wanted to talk about other things going on in prison. But I think that that's understandable as well because this happened when she was so young and this book came out much, 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 much later. I think this book came out like in the early 2000s and her shooting occurred in the late 70s. And I think that she does have quite a bit of distance from it, but she does hold herself accountable, which I appreciate. 
To end this story on a more positive note, one of the victims, Chris Stanley, was honored as Teacher of the Year in San Diego in 2007. Also, Principal Rag's granddaughter, Haley Rag, who's only in her mid-20s, now works for Safe Kids Incorporated, which develops school safety and curricula and guides for parents. We love this. It's a little early in the episode, but I think now is going to be the perfect time for us to take a quick break. So we'll be right back. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, we're back. Now that we've talked a bit about these women and girl shooters, let's talk a little bit about why it's more prevalent for men to be school shooters or mass shooters. According to the Violence Project, 98% of all mass shootings have been perpetrated by men. Statistics from a study that looked at mass shootings between the years 1982 and 2022 shows that there have been 129 male and only three female mass shooters. Besides the school shooters that were mentioned earlier, women were both perpetrators of the shooting at the YouTube headquarters and Rite Aid killings, but because they weren't involved in school shootings, I didn't mention them. Jillian Peterson, president of the Violence Project, said simply, men are just generally more violent, and there are multiple theories as to why. Like I said in the beginning of the episode, Keegan and I have discussed the discrepancy between male and female violence in past episodes, and we know it is much more complicated than men being more violent. It is the societal, cultural, and biological predisposition thrust upon these young boys. And if we could better understand the biological, psychological, and social factors that have contributed to mass violence, we will be able to better identify people with the propensity to commit mass shootings. I also wanted to point out that, again, this is not very gender inclusive. We are talking about biologically male and biologically female people. So Jill Peterson, the president of the Violence Project, goes on to say that men tend to externalize their problems and look for others to blame, while women tend to internalize their pain and more often self-blame. Boy, do I know this well. (laughs) Even if someone else does something wrong, I will most likely be like, well, but what did I do to cause this? And um, I'm working on that. 
Men have also been programmed to believe that emotions like anger and physical violence are acceptable means of expressing yourself, where women are not taught to have these loud outbursts of emotion at all. We are meant to keep things more to ourselves. And if we do have outbursts of anger and violence, we were seen as hysterical. And many times when women do choose violence, guns are not typically their weapon of choice. A guy by the name of Dr. Langman has studied the ties between men and mass shootings and found that low self-esteem and self-evaluation are common in mass shooters. Many shooters have internalized shame for reasons to do with sex, such as sterility or reproductive abnormalities, romantic rejections, or unfulfilled sexual desires, which to me sounds like the definition of an incel. And if you want to hear more about incels, go listen to the Red Pill episode from like four years ago. It's probably one of the best episodes that Keegan and I ever put out in our like four and a half years together. It's one of my favorites, not because it was a topic that makes me happy, but because I think it's really important for us to talk about the incel movement. A 2001 study published by the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry noted that in most cases, the perpetrator has had a perceived failure in love or school. I think this is really com I think this really displays itself in the man who shot up the uh, University of Santa Barbara. Um, this again, probably let's see, I was in college, so it would have been back in like 2013 or 14, I believe. And they had a whole incel manifesto as to why you know women don't treat him well and won't sleep with him and don't love him and all of this kind of stuff. And that was his quote unquote excuse for why he wanted to murder the women of the University of Santa Barbara. Dr. Langman also found some interesting physical findings about the boys and young male perpetrators, stating that they are usually of smaller stature than their peers physically and have lower muscle tone. To overcompensate, these boys may engage in behaviors and activities they feel will enhance their sense of ultra-masculinity, such as the use of violence or firearms. And this is where toxic masculinity is really coming into play. Not that it isn't everywhere, but I think that there is this idea for men in particular, if you are of a smaller stature, if you're not super muscly or whatever, if you are not what society has deemed as being like the most attractive, I think a lot of young boys will internalize that and begin to hate themselves because of it and want to express a more obvious sign of their masculinity and that's why you know violence and guns and things like that can easily become part of their life now I know a lot of men who are on the smaller side Max actually had to take growth hormone shots when he was born he was born way too early and had some birth defects and things like that so he was not able to grow normally as a person So he had to take those shots in order to grow taller. But after a while, he was just kind of sick of taking the shots. And he was like, I'm good. I'm tall enough. I'll stop. He's probably like 5'8", 5'9". He's not a super tall guy. And my ex, who I was with at the beginning of the show, um, he was like the same size as me for the most part. But he was super into going to the gym and being really muscly. And when I stalk his Instagram now, it's literally all gym selfies. So I don't know if he can tie into this as much. But I remember asking him because he was always like the smallest person in his class. I was like, was that 
hard for you? Like, did you feel like you had to overcompensate? And he always said, you know, he was fine with being small and that he was really well liked as a kid. And that never really seemed to be a factor in his life. And I think that's a really positive way of looking at it. I wish that we didn't hold men up to the standard of having to be like super tall, buff, whatever. Every man is perfect the way they are. Every man will be loved the way they are. And while I don't think it's an excuse to use violence as a way to enhance your masculinity, I just think that in general, we have to change our definition of what masculine means so that these young boys are not feeling like they don't fit in. I've also brought up a bit about hero worshiping of shooters that came before, and this is a very common trend in mass shooters, and there's evidence that they have been fascinated by shooters and the shootings that they perpetrated that came before them. Perpetrators of mass shootings are often looking for some sort of notoriety through their crimes and will model their attacks after those who came before them to gain fame. And I think this also ties into their desire of this ultra-masculine exterior. Um, they they want to be known. They want to be well-known. They want their crimes to be well-known, which is why I don't like to mention perpetrators' names when we talk about these mass shootings because I think that that's exactly what they wanted. These perpetrators also often see themselves in past perpetrators, and this is particularly common in young white killers. So we say all the time, representation matters, right? Well, this is when representation kind of bites us in the ass. So a lot of these young white men who have the same feelings as these young white killers will see themselves in them and be like, well, this is what they did to deal with their problems. Maybe I should do the same thing. This will gain me, you know, fame, notoriety. I'll be written about online. People are going to be seeing my face everywhere. And this is going to make my life worth it. And I found this interesting because this is something that we've known about for a long time, that these shooters will idolize one another. But this could also be a reason why there are less female shooters because there are less female role models for them to idolize after. Another large factor when we're discussing mass shootings, and I think this is a little bit less gendered in this topic, but mental illness is always at the heart of discussions when it comes to these mass shootings. It's mental illness and it's gun legislation. So there was bipartisan gun legislation that was signed in June of 2022 that included $8 billion toward mental health-based school programs, which we love to see more attention put on the mental health of our students, of our kids, but the focus on mental health is displaced. We must understand the distinction between mental health as a diagnosis and how a potential mass shooter may or may not fall into the category of mental illness. There is a difference between, you know, having a, a mental illness like depression or anxiety and things like that than actually having like the legal diagnostic definition of being mentally ill. Doctors Langman and another doctor by the name of Dr. Pies, it's probably Peace or something else, but I'm going to say Pies because it's spelled like Pies, have concluded that the overwhelming majority of perpetrators who commit mass shootings do not satisfy diagnostic requirements for mental illness. They make a point to say that being mentally disturbed is not the same as being mentally ill. However, there has been ties to trauma, as many mass shooters have had a history of trauma or abuse in their childhood. 
Although, in my opinion, I think that trauma is the lamest excuse to kill. Most people go through traumatic incidents in their lives or have bad childhoods and grow up to not shoot up schools or become mass shooters or be violent in any sort of way. But I also think that treatment for these people who have gone through trauma is also really important. Um, In the case of Brenda Spencer, she didn't have a father who was able to help her with her mental health needs, and so that probably worsened a lot of the feelings that she had which led to a shooting so while I don't believe that mental health should be used as an excuse for shootings I do think that it's important to recognize how lack of treatment for those things can perpetuate potential violence in the future I just don't like when people are like I had a bad childhood what did you expect me to do it's like no like I had a bad childhood at sometimes. You had a bad childhood at sometimes. All of us has our trauma, some worse than others, but I personally don't believe that using your trauma as an excuse to do more bad things is legit because it's not. So this Dr. Pies has extended on Langman's studies by stating that mass shooters often have an overriding worldview as one of anger, resentment, victimization, and narcissistic grandiosity. And I wish I had gone more into the narcissistic grandiosity, but I think that that's something that is probably really common within all of these shooters, especially because of their desire for notoriety and to be known by the world. They do have this very narcissistic idea of themselves. And I think anybody who is willing to kill someone else must be a little bit narcissistic because they believe they're better. They deserve to survive. Since I gave you a little shorter commercial break earlier, let's have a few more ads before we conclude this episode. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. All right, we're back. So now that we've talked about a lot of the different reasons that have been given for mass shootings and school shootings, let's talk a little bit about the archetype of a K-12 shooter. A school shooter who targets K-12 schools are typically white males, typically students or former students of the school, and have a history of trauma. So I tied some of our earlier stories into some of these examples, and Heather was a student of the school where she killed, and Brenda Spencer had experienced trauma in the past. Most school shooters are suicidal, plan their crimes extensively, and make others aware of their plans beforehand. Brenda was known to be suicidal, and both Heather and the Dunmore High School kids had told others about their plans beforehand. They typically have multiple guns or weapons, and they have typically stolen them from family members. The girl involved in the shooting plot of Dunmore High School had made homemade Molotov cocktails to bring with their rifles, something she had taken from the Columbine killers. So how can we prevent these school shootings? I think that everyone is different. I think that all kids display their hurt and pain in different ways. And while I think it could be dangerous to label a kid as a potential school shooter, 
I think it's important in general for us to always be aware of the behavior and the mental health of the students in the schools that we're working in. I know for myself as a nanny, I'm always very focused on how the kids I'm working with are reacting to certain things. For example, this is obviously not a dangerous situation, but I was working with a little nine-year-old girl that I helped take care of, and she had gotten this new jewelry kit for her birthday and it was kind of like this complicated there was like a chain and then she had these like thick like nylon cords that she had to like weave through the chain and she was really struggling with it and trying to do it herself she moved over to the couch to see if maybe being more comfortable would help she tried taping it down and I am the type of person that I'm gonna let a kid try to figure things out for themselves unless they specifically ask me if they want help especially with this kid like she really wants to do things for herself and she's really good at doing things for herself so even though I saw her start to get frustrated I was like let's see how this plays out. So I'm kind of standing at the other side of the room and I'm looking at my phone and my hearing sucks. So I didn't even I didn't hear any sniffles or anything, but I just looked up and noticed that she was crying. She was a little bit upset, but she wasn't really trying to let me know. I think she was kind of trying to hide that she was feeling upset. And I went over to her and I took the bracelet out of her hand. I wrapped her in my arms. And I just said, you know, it's okay to cry when we're frustrated about things because I cry when I'm frustrated about things. Even when it's something as small as not being able to get a craft right, sometimes those feelings can still feel really, really big. And it's okay for us to just let it out. But then we're also going to sit back and realize that this isn't a big deal. We can try and try again. Let's take some deep breaths. Because I also know that if I'm really worked up and I'm trying to do something right, it's usually not going to work because my heart is racing. Maybe I'm a little bit anxious and I'm really putting a lot of pressure on myself to do something right. Where if I can just stop and breathe and collect myself and be like, you know what, I'm just going to try this again. That's usually when I get better results. So while this is not an example of a disturbed child or anything like that, um, as a child care worker, I do think it's important for us to be able to really recognize where the kids in our lives struggle and how we can help them. Because I felt really important in that moment because I felt like I was able to teach her something that she can take with her for the rest of her life. You know, ways to help her dial down her stress, not to be so hard on herself because I'm still really hard on myself and I don't want any kids growing up to be that way. Now that I've gone on my little tangent, there is a website called McCaskillFamilyServices.com and doctors John and Pamela McCaskill list 10 characteristics of students at higher risk for school shootings. The first one is expression of anger and revenge, maybe through their art or on social media. I'm a big believer in art therapy. I've done a lot of art therapy, and it's something that very commonly is done with young kids who are in therapy. They will have them draw pictures because a lot of times how they draw, the colors they use, um, different imagery really can tell you a lot about the inner workings of a child's mind. I remember doing a lot of like 
dollhouse situations and other crafts and things like that when I was first in therapy when I was 10 years old. And it being also really comforting to be able to do something else like drawing or playing with dolls instead of just like talking about my problems. Because as a kid, I couldn't even really put those into words. So I do think that noticing art is something that's really important. Also looking at the writing that they do in class, although I wrote some really Really depressing stuff. I think I've mentioned on this show before, we had this whole section in like third or fourth grade on the pilgrims. And I've totally talked about this before because I was angry that the girls had to learn cross stitching, even though I love cross stitch. And the boys got to make these like step stools with their dads so the women all had to work on sewing and the boys all got to like build these cool step stools and I was like well this is bullshit like what if I wanted to build a step stool I should be able to go with that group right but in my writing we had to like tell the story of our pilgrim family I wrote my cute little story but I was really into um like Keegan and I talked about the Dear America books and stuff I was really into like dramatic stories I was not reading cute little like kidsy books when I was a kid so at the end I wrote how each of my characters died and some of them were really gruesome and as an adult I'm like man if I was that teacher I'd be like let's have them talk to somebody because they seem really fascinated by death and I wasn't fascinated with killing obviously I was just very fascinated with the tragedy of it all I was a big drama queen I also think that social media is a really important part of monitoring our children. I think that there's different levels of monitoring that is needed for different children. Because I was given a lot of trust and privacy with the internet when I was young, although social media is not what it is now. I was like on MySpace and stuff, and it wasn't as often that I was coming across like random strangers and things like that. So I don't think my mom even really knew to be checking in on that kind of stuff. But I think that if you have a child or a student who is displaying some of these more disturbed behaviors, I think it is important to know, you know, who your kid is following, who's following them. I also think having an awareness of what they're commenting on Instagram is really important and on Twitter and things like that, because I'm sure most of the trolls that we get on the podcast Instagram page are like young teenage boys who are just like trying to get a rise out of me by telling me to get back in the kitchen and things like that. So I think it is important for parents to be able to monitor what their kids are doing. But I think more important than that, it's talking about their involvement with social media. Who are you talking to? What's going on? You know, and just being a part of your kids lives in that way, I think is really important. But also when a child is showing you that they are being responsible with social media and with the internet, it's good to give them a level of privacy as that's going to help them grow and feel more independent as people when they can problem solve for themselves. Many school shooters will have a dysfunctional family situation. And again, I'm going to tie this into a nannying story. Whenever T would get picked on at school when he was younger or one of his friends was being mean to him that day, I would always remind him that we never know what our friends are dealing with outside of school. And sometimes them acting out is all they know to do to get attention in replacement for the love that they need. And this is something that I think kids can even understand. It's like if you're having a bad day at home, that doesn't stop just because you're in school. So sometimes you might have 
bad behavior at school because of something going on at home. And a lot of times kids don't have the vocabulary and they even have a lot of fear in talking to other adults and other people about what's going on at home because I think a lot of parents do put a lot of emphasis on privacy in the home, especially if there are things that are dysfunctional that are going on in the home. And this is when I think noticing other sorts of warning signs is important in kids because they won't always discuss the problems in the house. They are often socially isolated. And this one is tough for me because I don't believe that we should try to make friends with someone who brings up fear in us or makes us uncomfortable just because they don't have any friends. But I do think it's important to always remember to treat people with kindness. So whoever the weirdo is in your class, you know, if they're making you feel not great, like you don't want to hang out with them, they scare you a little bit, like it's not your responsibility to be friends with them. But I do think that it's everyone's responsibility to always treat each other with kindness and fairness and to not ridicule that person just because they're maybe a little bit different. School shooters will have actual or perceived bullying by peers. While oftentimes bullying is often part of the problem with many behavioral issues for kids, it can also be perceived to be bullying because of their isolation and they just feel like they don't belong. So sometimes, you know, being ignored by their peers would be perceived as bullying because they're not seeing themselves as the kids that they want to be. And I think that that really furthers that isolation. Another common trend is that they feel like they are treated unfairly by teachers and faculty. While some may only perceive unfair treatment by faculty, there are many factors as to why a child may feel that the school staff is out to get them, and usually it may be because their needs aren't being met and they're struggling in the classroom. I think this brings up a different type of emotion in those predisposed to violence or not. I struggled a lot in school, and I didn't always receive the help from teachers that I needed because they didn't understand my learning differences and things like that. I still don't. Um, But I think that it's easy to see the adults in our lives as being out to get us, especially if they're grading us badly and saying negative things to us. But I also want to point out that there is systemic racism in our schools that a lot of teachers probably are treating a lot of students unfairly because of their inherent bias that they aren't aware of or that they are aware of. I don't know. And so this one's a little bit tricky for me because I do think that in a lot of instances, teachers can be just as bad of bullies as students can be. And I understand why a lot of kids would believe that the school teachers and faculty and staff may be out to get them because they aren't behaving well and they're being punished or they're not getting as good of grades or maybe they're just not supporting them in the social aspects of school. So I can really understand it from all sides. I think with this, if you are a teacher or if you work in school, I think it's always really important to check those biases to be sure that we're treating each student with fairness and respect and we're giving them each the amount of time and space that they need as students. At times, they seem to live in a fantasy world. Now, this makes sense to me for a lot of reasons, as kids' frontal lobes are not yet fully developed, and in troubled children in particular, it can be hard for them to learn empathy or understand the reality of death. I'm sure you've heard stories of young children whose parents or loved ones have passed away, and there is just a lack of understanding of what death really means and that it's very final. 
They have a lack of developmentally or socially acceptable morals, ethics, or appropriate remorse. And that kind of goes into the topic that I just mentioned. I've said this one a few times already, but communicating plans or intention on harming others. This is when mandatory reporting is absolutely essential. I really hope that teachers have learned through the years the importance of reporting the things that they see in their students so that faculty can be aware of their behaviors instead of just like not believing them or thinking like, oh, they're kids, they're blowing this out of proportion. I think if a child ever mentions hurting themselves or hurting others, it has to be taken absolutely seriously. One more quick story about when I was in school. When I was young, they put me on Paxil, which is now like very well known, like don't give it to kids because it causes suicidal thoughts. And that's what happened to me. So I was like in seventh grade, I was about 12 years old. And I was really, really, really struggling with suicidal thoughts. And it was really scary to me. But I still acted like myself. You know, this was one thing that I think a lot of people missed when it came to me displaying a lot of my signs of unhappiness and depression and things like that is that I still always acted like I do now like I'm super talkative I want to hang out and all this kind of stuff but there would always be this underlying darkness brewing in my head especially during this time and it was really scary because I didn't understand why this was happening I went from having panic attacks and anxiety particularly from being separated from my mom and now it was turning into a lot of really negative self thoughts and suicidal thoughts and I remember being at my locker and telling my friend Alexis being like I'm gonna kill myself within an hour the principal of the entire K through 12 school, the school that I went to went from kindergarten all the way through high school and they were separated by different floors. So the first floor was like the elementary school. I was on the middle floor for the junior high middle school. And then the top levels of the school were all the high school and it's way bigger than the rest of the school. It is beautiful too, by the way, although this school absolutely sucked. And I was called in by the principal who I had never met because I always dealt with the administrator for the middle school. So it was very weird walking all the way up to the high school and then I had to climb up another flight of stairs to get to the dean's office, which was almost in this little like loft area of this school. And I walk in and both my mom and dad are there. Now, I really didn't want my dad there because I didn't like discussing any of my negative feelings with my dad around. I always got really embarrassed. I didn't want him to know I've never had a lot of trust for him. So the principal was essentially like, so we heard you're suicidal. And I didn't really know what to say. I felt really stupid. I felt embarrassed that I had said it, that my friend had told a teacher that they had done anything. Um, and all this school really did for me was hand me a stack of prayer cards and tell me to pray on it and that God would help me. Um, and that didn't work. <laughs> So my parents were aware and luckily they were able to adjust my medication a little bit to be able to help me. Um, so while I was totally embarrassed and felt terrible that my friend would out me like that, looking back as an adult, I'm so thankful that she did because it's so important that my mom was aware of what was going on with me so that they could help adjust my medication, talk to me more about things like that, and have my mom be aware with that darker side of my brain that I didn't really share with anybody else. 
These kids will often have a history of aggressive or violent acts, sometimes cruelty to animals. I think a lot of us remember that one like troublemaker kid in class that was always, you know, getting in trouble for hitting someone or being a little bit too aggressive on the playground. And while I think, again, that is very normal for kids to be able to express themselves, I think it is important to be able to catch those moments and help teach children to behave in different ways when they have these really strong feelings. Feelings, and that behaving in violent ways is not going to get them what they want. Lastly, these kids have legitimate struggles and needs that aren't being validated or addressed. This comes from their parents, their peers, their siblings, their teachers, everybody. I think that every child, so much of life, wants to be validated. They want to be told that they're doing well. And I think that they also want to be validated in their negative thoughts and feelings that they're having that they're having. But since kids are unable to always express themselves in the same ways that adults are, it's important for the adults around them to be attuned to maybe why children are having these sorts of behavioral problems. So we bounced around quite a bit in this episode, and it was interesting for me to really stick to women perpetrators as school shooters because there are so few but I think it's really important to talk about in general the different signs and things that we may see in our children growing up so we can help prevent these school shootings from occurring in the future. The numbers of school shootings are rising steadily still. The statistics are absolutely staggering And clearly more and more needs to be done both on a personal level and a legislative level to be able to protect children going to school. Also, I apologize if you can hear my dog crying in that last part. She wants to go on a walk. In general, I believe that we see less women and girls being mass shooters and school shooters for a number of reasons. And they are a lot of the reasons that I mentioned earlier in the episode. Women are not societally taught to show physical signs of aggression and anger. Historically, female killers will have more sneaky methods like poisoning. Um, You know, we've all seen Mean Girls. Maybe you've seen Heathers. It tends to be a little bit more, quote unquote, catty statistically and things like that. Though I do believe that there are many, many women that do display the same behaviors as men. And those women are probably seen as even more, you know, crazy or troubled than the boys because it's less likely to see a lot of these physical displays of anger from young women. I also think that a huge factor as to why there are less female shooters is because there is a lack of representation of young girl and female shooters. And I think with that being said, a very important thing that we can do as a society is to not be giving these shooters the notoriety that they are looking for. I feel like every time there is a shooting, I open my phone or turn the TV on and there's a huge picture of another young white boy's face and they're saying their names a million times. And I think that while it is important to get these stories out to understand these killers so we can better prevent them. By saying their names and telling their stories over and over again, it is implanting ideas that this can be a way for someone to feel more important in their lives when they're really struggling from something. And I think it's also really important to acknowledge that a lot of kids don't have the same understanding of death 
that adults do, even teenagers who are, you know, we believe that they are old enough to know better. I think that there are a lot of biological differences between the brains of an adult and a child, which is why they should be treated so differently as well. I hope this was an interesting conversation for you, that you enjoyed my discussion on this topic. It is something that has particularly been on my mind since the shooting last week in St. Louis. The ramifications of these school shootings and find patterns in these shooters, hopefully, the better we can prevent them in the future. I want to give a big, big, big thank you to everyone who has been reaching out either with episode suggestions, throwing themselves in the ring for co-host or sidekick, and every other little ounce of support and love that you all have been sending me during this time. Again, I really, really love and appreciate all of your support. I haven't gotten a new review in a while, which I did mention at the end of the mini episode, and that truly is the best way that you can show your support. It's also a really great way for other people to be able to start listening to the show because once they read about why you love it, maybe they'll want to listen too. You know what I'm saying? So if you haven't left a review already, please go over to your Apple Podcasts app, give the show a five-star review, and leave a quick sentence about why you enjoy it. You can also rate us on Spotify. If you have any episode suggestions or if you want to reach out, if you have thoughts on this episode, anything, please email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or feel free to direct message me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. We have a Facebook group and business page. You can rate and review on the business page and chat with the fellow listeners on the group page. Y'all are lovely. All right, that is all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.